Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the letter to Paul to the church in Rome. We are in chapter 3 and reading from verse 21 through verse 31. And again, I invite you to turn in your scriptures and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired word. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. After the Apostle Paul's strong argument detailing the truth of humanity's spiritual condition as well as the futility of any attempts on our part, to atone for our sin through obedience, either by an internal sense of morality or the explicit law of Moses, Paul returns now to the good news that first appeared in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. And in doing so, he begins with the phrase, but now. Uh, we need to recognize that this is more than a literary transition. Paul is not simply calling attention to a shift in the case that he is making. He is calling attention to a moment in time when God brought about a new thing. This is akin to the town crier declaring, Hear ye, hear ye in order to gain the attention of all for a most important announcement. Something has occurred in space and time that has forever changed the future. But now, apart from the law, 
the righteousness of God has been made known. In other words, the entire construct that the Jews had believed was the way of salvation, obedience to the law of Moses, has been demolished. They long operated under the premise that the way to become righteous, to be put in right standing with God, was by means of a strict adherence to the law and the interpretations of the law by the scribes. By the same token, the philosophical understanding of moralistic Gentiles that God would grade humanity on a curve such that those whose good deeds outweighed their bad deeds would be okay in the sight of God, that also has been demolished. In fact, any religious or philosophical rationale designed to create a pathway to an eternal salvation has been wrecked by what Paul is announcing now. But now, Paul says, there is a righteousness of God that can be obtained apart from the law. A righteousness that is from faith for faith. The righteous will live by faith. Now the amazing thing that he affirms here in verse 21 is that this righteousness of God that is experienced by faith was testified about by the law and the prophets. In other words, God was providing insight into this new reality long before it was ever manifested. The law was pointing forward to it as were the prophets. Now we might ask, how so? Well, the law was testifying to it by showing sinners that they were sinners. Anyone who has made a concerted effort to live obediently according to the law of God or simply to the internal sense of right and wrong that they may have soon discovers their inability to do that perfectly and consistently. They quickly come to realize that there is a fallenness to our nature that is inescapable. It isn't that they have a bad day now and then. It is that every day is a bad day. Every hour is a bad hour. Every minute is a bad minute. For as soon as they have the thought, I'm doing pretty good today, an evil notion enters their mind and they realize that that came from within. But because the law comes from God, one needs to acknowledge that the law is not the problem. The law is not imperfect. The law is a reflection of the will of God. It is designed to demonstrate the vast difference between the holy nature of God and our sinful nature. It is designed to show us what was lost to us when we rebelled against God in the garden. Had Adam remained faithful, there would have been no need for Ten Commandments because it never would have occurred to him to have some other God or to disrespect God's name or to steal from a neighbor or to violate the sanctity of marriage or to murder someone. The only reason for God's commands was to show us the fallenness of our nature. But the law also set before us what would be required for our salvation. 
the law articulated that atonement would need to be made and that it would require the life of a perfect substitute to redeem us, to purchase our freedom from our bondage to sin. And this is where the prophets came in. Not only did they underscore what the law was telling us, that we were sinners living in rebellion to God, they began to point forward to the coming Messiah who would redeem us by way of His death and resurrection. Now, we do not have time to review all of those scriptures today, but the resurrected Christ did so on the road to Emmaus with two of His disciples, as is recorded in Luke chapter 24, where Jesus says to the two disciples, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he asks a rhetorical question. Was it not necessary? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then he answers his own question by saying, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, Paul would be the first to admit that he himself did not see these things before Christ revealed himself to the future apostle on the road to Damascus. Paul is not saying that it was patently obvious to everyone everywhere, but he is saying that all the types and shadows were present. He is saying that God established all that was necessary to prepare for what has been made so clear now. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Now it has been made known through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And for the first time in this letter, Paul is saying that Christ is the object of our faith. This righteousness of God comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. This righteousness of God does not come through some biological ancestry. It does not come through obedience to the law or good works. It does not come through any philosophy. It does not come through church membership or the sacraments. It does not come through uh, an intellectual assent to Christian principles, it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, he says. There is no distinction. And the reason there is no distinction is because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person needs this righteousness of God, and the only way that it can be found is through faith in Jesus. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, the writer to the Hebrews defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That is to say that biblical faith is the confidence, the assurance, the foundational substance of things hoped for, and the conviction or the persuasion or the proof of things not seen. 
In other words, faith is not merely an intellectual exercise that simply understands a conceptual idea. It is not the ability to indicate to another, I see what you mean. But rather it is a laying hold of something in the sense of fully trusting the truth of what is being pronounced. It is believing it and trusting it, even though I cannot see it with my physical eyes, I can see it with my spiritual vision, and I can be substantially established on it to the degree that I am fully convinced in it and what it offers. I am fully persuaded by it. There's no doubt in my mind that this is true, and I am investing all that I am upon the truth of it. And the result of this kind of faith in Jesus Christ is that God graciously justifies us. That is, God takes awful, guilty sinners such as ourselves and declares us to be justified before Him. God does not need to do this. God would be perfectly just to pass over every single person. If God did that, we would receive exactly what we deserve, no more and no less. God would not be unjust to punish us according to our sin. But because God is gracious, because God is merciful, God established a means of salvation that involved the eternal Son of the Father, whom Paul says here put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by this faith that we have just described. Now here is where those old covenant types and shadows show up as most helpful picture of what was to come. You see, when the high priest would prepare for the Day of Atonement, he had much ritual cleansing to do, for he was preparing to enter the Holy of Holies that most inner sanctum of the temple of God where the Ark of the Covenant was situated, atop which was a golden lid displaying images of cherubim, and this was known as the mercy seat. And it was here that the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrificed animals for the sins of the people once a year. The word for mercy seat is the same word Paul uses here that is translated as propitiation. Now, what does that mean? Well, the essence of this is that the blood sacrifice of Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, the unique God-man, became the covering that the Father accepted as satisfaction for His wrath against all our ungodliness and unrighteousness. Paul says that it was God who put Christ forward as a propitiation by His blood. In other words, Christ did not die as an unfortunate martyr. He did not die as the result of a political conspiracy against an itinerant rabbi who was bucking the status quo. God the Father so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. There was nothing unscripted about this. God knew before the foundation of the world what would be needed to ransom us and redeem us. This is God's 
most elegant solution to the problem of our sin. When we rebelled against God's sovereign authority, we were in a dilemma that had no solution. God had pronounced the consequence before the crime. The day that you eat of the tree, you will die. There was nothing we could offer to God to atone for our sin. What do you offer to the one who owns everything? But God being God is infinitely loving and long-suffering. He's infinitely merciful and gracious. But God is also perfectly just and truthful. God cannot not be true to Himself. He declared that the penalty for rebellion would be death, and so shall it be. To accept anything other than death as a consequence for our sin, that would be unjust. To fail to require it would be to make himself out to be a liar, which is impossible. But there was one who had something to offer as an atonement for our sin. There was one who had the capacity to do what Adam failed to do. There was one whose lifeblood, if poured out for our sake, could serve as a propitiation, as a mercy seat, as a ransom to purchase our redemption. This divine, eternal one, if he were to take on our flesh, and live a life of complete obedience to the Father, could serve as our substitute, enduring the consequence for our sin, thus enabling the Father to be just, and also the justifier of all those who have faith in Jesus. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, For all who believe. You see, when we come to realize that the death of Christ was not symbolic, but was the foundation upon which grace and mercy were extended to all who believe, then we also come to understand that the lifeblood of Christ is indispensable. The Scriptures declare there is no forgiveness of sins apart from the shedding of blood. The life of one is offered in exchange for another. And what makes this good news so good and so glorious is that this offering has a permanence and a capacity unlike those previously offered by the high priests of old. The writer to the Hebrews makes much of this in his discourse, declaring that the priests of the old covenant had to repeatedly offer the blood of bulls and goats, which had no efficacy at all to wipe away sin. But then he points to Christ as our high priest of a new order, whose offering of his own blood secured an eternal redemption, he says. And then he writes, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 
For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now here's an offering made unto the Father that is sufficient to turn away the wrath of God from us. Here's an offering that is so perfect, so pure, so undefiled, that it is glorious in the sight of God the Father. Is it any wonder that Jesus says to His disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by Me. There is no other means to approach the Father than by the blood of Jesus Christ. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now is there a single believer who can boast about themselves in any way before God? How could they? If they try to do so, they do not understand this grace. They do not understand the unique means of salvation that God has created where all the work is done by Him and all the glory is due to His name. And yet you will hear people attempt to turn their faith in Christ into a work of righteousness. They attempt to take credit for believing in Jesus when their neighbor does not. Now, do we need to believe in Jesus? We absolutely do. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. But we cannot even take credit for having that faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, Paul writes to the Ephesians. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Seldom do we recognize that the faith we have to invest has itself been given to us by God as a gift of His grace. So not only has God done all the work in securing our salvation, God has provided us with all that is necessary so that we might trust in Christ. Now Paul wants to make one last point here to avoid any charges against him that he is preaching a kind of lawlessness or antinomianism as we spoke about last week. And he asked the rhetorical question, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? And he answers, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Well, how can that be so? The gospel of Christ does not eliminate the law of God. As we said earlier, the law of God shows us our need for a Savior. It provides us with a window into the mind of God. It is a reflection of God's will for humanity. But the law was never a means of salvation because as sinners we are incapable of keeping it. But what we learn is that our Savior was not incapable of keeping the law. In fact, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, you and I are saved by works of the law. But they're not our works. They are Christ's works of the law. 
and it is his perfect fulfillment of the law that has qualified him to be our perfect substitute. And as we will learn deeper into this letter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are being sanctified and enabled to walk in the ways of righteousness. Paul will declare later in chapter 8, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, the salvation that God offers in Christ is not simply a forgiveness of our sin, but it also involves a deliverance from the power of sin that dwells within these mortal bodies of ours. God is engaged in a recreation that will make all things new. We read a moment ago from the Gospel of Matthew that very frightening passage concerning those who were under the mistaken notion that they were disciples of Christ when in fact they were workers of lawlessness by Christ's estimation. Now did you notice there what the problem was? When Jesus served at notice that they were not sheep within his fold, they immediately began to point to the long list of personal works that they had done, operating under the mistaken notion that salvation rests upon our good deeds. Please hear clearly what the Apostle is saying in this letter, that this salvation is all of God. It is by His grace and not due to anything in us. It is based on the work of His Son. It is through faith, but even that is a gift. And if you sense that you are in any way relying upon something in you that will cause God to save you, please perish that thought and cast yourself entirely upon the atoning work of Christ. Believe that what He has done is entirely sufficient to save you and do not trust any other thing. Let your attitude reflect that of the hymn writer Isaac Watts. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count as loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me for a moment that we might pray together.